Welcome to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson. If you're not in a relationship with God through faith in Christ today, this is the purpose for which Jesus came. Don't let that escape you. Don't miss that. Don't settle for religion. Don't settle for church. Don't settle for, I'm going to try to be a better person. None of that is what it's about. It's about coming to know God. Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study in the Gospel of Mark. Join us as Pastor Brian begins his teaching on Mark, chapter 16, verses 1 through 13, in a message titled, The Empty Tomb. Now, here's Pastor Brian. So we come back one final time to the 15th chapter of Mark's gospel. We're back looking once again at the suffering of Jesus and specifically looking at the crucifixion, but, but even more specifically looking at this one statement where Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This has been called the cry of dereliction. And the word here, dereliction, means abandonment. And so this has been referred to as the cry of abandonment. Jesus is crying out, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Now, there's questions that we have to ask when we come to this. So, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This seemed to be the case. Jesus is expressing what seemed to be the reality to him. God had abandoned him, and what he was experiencing was kind of evidence of that, because God, if you were with me, I wouldn't be in this predicament that I'm in. So in one sense, that was the case, but yet in another sense, it wasn't exactly what some people think and teach. And so... Although Jesus was forsaken by the Father, we have to make sure we understand just exactly what that meant and what it didn't mean. And that's what I want to focus on. And that's where we're going to get into the more theological aspect of our time here together today. So here's a question. What really happened that caused Jesus to cry out? What what was actually going on? Now, there is a teaching, and it's, it's very popular. It's very common amongst evangelical preachers and some theologians. And, and the teaching is essentially that Christ was abandoned to the point that if you really thought deeply about it, you would, you would understand that it would necessitate a broken trinity, a broken trinity. Think about that for a moment. So God is triune. God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And some interpretations of what's happening here is that the the trinity itself was broken up because God, the Father, was now turning away completely. There's a separation. There's a tearing that takes place. And, And this is communicated by various people in a number of different ways. And so let me just read a few 
uh, sentences to you that express this idea. So the father rejected the son. That's a simple one. One would say that as God exhausted his wrath upon the son, he then completely abandoned him. Some would put it, the father hid his face from the son. Others would communicate it. Jesus became sin. Therefore, the father's wrath was poured out on Jesus Another way of expressing it, the physical pain Christ suffered in his passion was nothing in comparison to the spiritual and relational pain that Christ endured as he was separated from the Father. God cursed Jesus with damnation. The eternal communion between the Father and the Son was ruptured on that fateful day. It all amounts to this. The Trinity was broken. Now, Is that really what happened? That's the question that we are asking. And why should we reject that idea? Why have I myself rejected an idea that I formally had promoted? Well, there are three reasons. And they are historical, textual, and theological. So let's look at each one. Historical. I found out Again, that this idea is a relatively newer idea and that the earliest Christian thinkers and writers and scholars beginning in the very early centuries of the history of the church right up to the Reformation, that none of them thought this. And if you go back to, say, the the fourth century and you go back to names like Athanasius or Ambrose or Augustine, or Cyril of Alexandria, Gregory Nazianzus, John of Damascus. Uh, These are all some of the early scholars of the church. And none of them thought that this is what was taking place. None of them thought that this cry of dereliction, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, meant that there was a tearing of the, the Trinity. None of them thought that. So history right on up through John Calvin during the time of the Reformation in the 16th century. They all rejected this idea. None of them saw this as as this kind of a tearing. So historically, there's plenty to look at that would disagree with it. Secondly, textually. And and textually is really, in some ways, the most important. Because when we say textually, we're talking about the biblical text itself. And here's the question. Does the biblical text teach that, when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, that there was a rending of the Trinity? Does the text teach that? No, it doesn't teach it. That is something that's read into the text. And well-intendedly read into the text, I think. But nevertheless, it's read into the text. This occurs, this phrase occurs three times in the Bible. Psalm 22 is where it originated, as I pointed out. And it's quoted by Matthew, and it's quoted by Mark. Or Mark, Matthew and Mark, in their crucifixion account, they include that, where Luke and John do not include it. But in each one of those passages... There's nothing in the text itself that says this is what happened. When you look at Jesus on the cross, 
he utters this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But as you follow from that point on, Jesus continues in communion with the Father to the very point of death. And at the point of death, he says, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. So you see, if there was actually a rending, if now at this point, the father and the son were separated from one another, God no longer has a son. He's disconnected himself from the son. It would hardly make any sense that Jesus would say, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And so textually, there's no support for this idea that there was a severing of the relationship between the father and the son. And then thirdly and finally, theologically. And to look at the theological perspective, I want to quote to you from an author named Thomas H. McCall. And he wrote a book called Forsaken, The Trinity and the Cross and Why It Matters. And this is... This is why it matters. It matters because this idea is inconsistent or contrary even to what the doctrine of the Trinity actually teaches. And this is an important thing. Now, this is where theologians are good. (laughs) They think about things that we don't necessarily think about. And then they force you to think about things. And so as I've had to rethink the Trinity... It's been the rethinking of the Trinity that has brought me to the conclusion that what I thought about what happened on the cross when Jesus cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That I was wrong. It's because of the nature of the Trinity. And so Thomas McCall, he writes this, God is triune, which means the being of God is a relational being. Without communion, it would not be possible to speak of the being of God. The problem here for the broken Trinity model should be obvious. If the being of God is a relational being, and if the relationships are severed, then surely there is no God at all. The triune God of the Christian faith does not exist apart from the relations between the divine persons. If we understand the doctrine of the Trinity properly, we will be in a position to see that saying the Trinity is broken amounts to saying God does not exist. God is eternally Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. To break that eternal unity is impossible. So you see, if we understand the the doctrine of the Trinity as it should be understood, we realize that it's not possible that what we sometimes say or think happened actually did happen. It's not possible that the the Son and the Father could be separated. God is a relational being, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, eternally. And like I said a moment ago, eternally means always, forever. It, It can't be interrupted. And so much so that McCall says, if you could interrupt it, you would end up, there is no God, because this is who God is. Now, one of the blessings, practical blessings from the understanding, the proper understanding of the Trinity as relational is it assures us that God really is love. See, the Bible says God is love, not simply that God is loving, 
But God is love. His very being is love. But you see, if God is eternally love, then that must mean that there has to be the experience of love with God eternally. But we know that creation, whether it's the creation of mankind and the universe or the angelic creation, we know that these things all came in to being at a certain point. But God's eternally love. How is he eternally love? If God is a singular being, then it makes zero sense to say that he's love because you, there has to be somebody to love in order for love to be a reality. But if you understand this triunity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God is love, and there's been this mutual love within the being of God forever. And so that's who God is. And so it's not possible that God could be anything other than that. So, so the idea that, that there was a broken trinity is just, again, simply, it's a wrong understanding. So here's the question then. Well, what? was Jesus referring to when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There was a genuine sense in which the son, in fact, was abandoned by the father. But he was abandoned over to death on the cross. That's what he's talking about. Because obviously God could have delivered him from that. God could have saved him from that. But he is delivered over into the hands of sinful people who abuse and humiliate him. And of course, all of this is done because of our sin. But, but th- when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's what he's referring to. And that's what the... All of those um, names that I mentioned earlier, all of those early scholars, theologians in the early centuries of the church right up to the Reformation, that's what every one of them understood this to mean. So there's no disunity between the Father and the Son ever. Our salvation has come through the working of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all working in unison together. The Father plans for our salvation. The Son is the one who carries out the mission. And the Holy Spirit aids the Son and applies the salvation to us who become saved. So that's what the cry of dereliction was about. And it was through the giving up of his life So again, another theological idea that we need to drill down more deeply into is the the understanding of the incarnation. So the incarnation is that God became a man. And the man, Jesus Christ, is fully God and fully human simultaneously. And that's really difficult to get your head around. And there are all different kinds of ways people have tried to figure that out and sort it out. And most of the time they end up with the wrong conclusions. And yet the the proper understanding, after all the debates have taken place, the proper understanding is that Jesus is fully God and he's fully human. He's not part God, part human. He's not mostly God and a little bit human. He's, He's both. He's fully God and fully human. And 
so he comes as the God-man and he is the one to bridge the gap between humanity and the Father. And he does that through his death on the cross, which meant that he would be delivered over to evil and sinful people and he would die a death. And in that death, he would be made the sin offering. See, some of the the wrong view is based on a wrong understanding of Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 5.21. 2 Corinthians 5.21, if you have a, say, a King James or a New King James Bible, it says that God made him, speaking of Christ, who knew no sin to be sin for us. So some people say, see, Jesus was made sin. He became sin. And of course, God can't look at sin. So that's why God had to turn away. But the real meaning of that is not that Jesus became sin, but that he became the sin offering. He didn't become sin. He didn't have all the filth and vile and perversity of of all the sinful acts of all of humanity put on himself. So he becomes that. He is the offering for that. His life pays the penalty that those sins incurred. Now, as we finish up, as we read on in the passage, in verse 38, well, verse 37, we read this. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice, and breathed his last, then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And and what I want to close with today is I want to bring us to the objective that God had in delivering over his son to die for us. What was the objective? Well, to put it simply, the objective was to bring us into a relationship with him. And the significance of verse 38 is that this tearing of the veil in the temple, this is symbolic of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. Now, in the temple, and remember the temple was preceded by a tabernacle, which was a tent. And when God had Moses make this tent, there were two places where the priests would minister. There was the holy place where the priest daily would conduct the ministry. And then there was the most holy place where only the high priest could go. And he could only go once a year. And he could only go with the blood of an animal that had been sacrificed. And between the holy place and the most holy place, there was a veil. And that veil indicated that there was no access to God for the people. So when Jesus dies, now this is, this is a radical miracle around the crucifixion of Jesus that's rarely talked about. But by the time we get to the New Testament period, by the time we get to the period that we're looking at here with Jesus, the second temple period, the Holy of Holies is separated from the sanctuary by a veil that is 18 inches thick. 
Now, an 18-inch thick veil was letting everybody know that there was absolutely no access to this place. But when Jesus dies, this 18-inch thick veil was torn from the top to the bottom. Can you imagine what it would be like to tear an 18-inch veil? You know, I have found one of the things that I'm discovering about getting old, you know what's becoming more difficult for me? Opening like a package. I don't know. It's like, am I getting weaker or do they just seal packages so tightly these days? Like, you know, they're just not going to let you in. Because, you know, I find myself just tearing and nothing's happening. Finally, I just have to go for a knife or scissors or something to get into the thing. But, you know, <laughs> you know there, there are things that you're just not going to tear. And I'll tell you right now, nobody's going to tear an 18-inch veil except God. And remember, it was torn from the top to the bottom. And what was that about? It's so interesting how the gospel writers had just sort of mention it almost incidentally, almost in passing. But it was so significant because it was the message to everyone that now the way into the presence of God is available for everyone. That's what, that's the message that was sent. And that's what the New Testament goes on to tell us. And that's really the essence of the gospel that we who were at one time outside of God's or access to God because of our sin, that sin has been removed by Jesus. And Hebrews even refers to the veil as being his flesh. And Jesus removed that barrier and he brings us into fellowship with God. And, and let me say this again. I say it a lot, but I'm going to keep saying it. The whole point of the gospel is to bring human beings into a relationship with God. And that's why Jesus died. And that's why God allowed him to be delivered over to death. So that he would pay the penalty for sin. And sin could be removed. And the veil would be torn. And God would basically be saying through that, everyone's invited. Come in. Come and know me. Come and know the one who made you. Come and know the one who loves you. Come and know the one who created you with a purpose. That's what the gospel is about. And that's why ultimately Jesus cried out in that loud voice. It was so we would never have to be abandoned by God in the ultimate sense that we could be reconciled and brought into a relationship with him. And my final word is this. If you're not in a relationship with God through faith in Christ today, this is the purpose for which Jesus came. Don't let that escape you. Don't miss that. Don't settle for religion. Don't settle for church. Don't settle for, I'm going to try to be a better person. None of that is what it's about. It's about coming to know God. And that happens through putting faith in the Christ who died and rose again and lives forever 
to meet you right where you're at and to work his will into your lives. September, Back to Basics Radio is offering a book titled A London Sparrow, the inspiring and true story of Gladys Allward by Phyllis Thompson. The story of Gladys Allward is one that inspires. God used Gladys Allward to reach the lost in China during a period of peril and war. The story is one that is transparent about her weaknesses and mistakes, but it's also a story of God's strength made perfect through weaknesses, God's promised provision, and a life surrendered to God. If you have a longing for God to use your life, but have been discouraged by setbacks or doubts that God can use you, you need to get this book. You'll be inspired by what God can do through a life that is willing to follow Him. The book A London Sparrow, The Inspiring and True Story of Gladys Allward by Phyllis Thompson is our gift to say thank you for your donation to Back to Basics. So we encourage you to call us right now at 1-800-733-6443 or visit us online at backtobasicsradio.com. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue tomorrow with more valuable insights from Pastor Brian as we study together in the Gospel of Mark. Back to Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.